Haggai. So here's the one thing I love about the minor prophets and the messages that they receive from the Lord. <laughs> they jump right into the message, right? Like they don't sugarcoat it. There's no introduction. There's not an illustration. There's nothing that has to take place to, you know, to, get, to, to make a point to the people. They just jump straight into the message and they come out swinging with, with both of them and they, they land some stuff, right? And so that same way with, with Haggai today. And so let me just give you some quick facts and then we're going to jump straight to it. Uh, Haggai, uh, his name means festival. The phrase, the Lord Almighty, is used 14 times within 38 verses. So this prophet had definitely a really humble perspective of who he is. He's not just the Lord. He is the Lord Almighty. Haggai is the first prophet post-exile used to send a message to the Judean community. And we'll talk more about the exile in just a second. Uh, many scholars call Haggai's message to have the most and I love this, spiritual common sense. It's like, you people are missing it. Here's just some common sense that you people are missing. And here it is, straight forward. So I mentioned the exile. Remember, the kingdom of David, Solomon, it's one kingdom. It's now split into kingdoms, north, south, Israel, Judah. And all the other kings that you read about, they served in one of these two kingdoms. And all the messages of the prophets so far have been warnings of overthrow by foreign pagan countries because God's people can't get along in their treatment of one another and how they treat and view God. And so God said, because you can't get along, because of all the injustice that's taking place within your own people, because of the, the pagan worship and the idol worship that you're doing in your own communities, I'm going to send these outside powerful countries to come in and they're going to annihilate you. They're going to come in, they're going to raid you, they're going to kidnap you, they're going to take you as slaves, and it's going to all be part of the discipline. And so in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come raiding and they ransack Jerusalem, destroying most things, especially the temple. And so King Nebuchadnezzar took back to Babylon a whole lot of people from Israel to become slaves, i.e. the book of Daniel. So you can go read that. Fifty years later, Babylon itself, as promised, was overthrown by Cyrus, king of Persia. And he gave permission for all the Jews to return home if they desired. Tracking with me? So Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He's the last of the main armies to just ransack everything. Jerusalem falls completely. Walls are destroyed. The temple's destroyed. Fifty years after that, Cyrus comes in and takes care of the Babylonians, wipes them out, and he says to you Jews, I really don't have a beef with you people. As a matter of fact, we'll read it in just a second. Uh, you guys can go back if you want to. And so many do. Many head back to the fallen, destroyed Jerusalem. Some... They've adapted to their new culture. They don't go back. Maybe they were born while they were in exile. They, 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 they decide not to go back. And so many of this sect that stays behind will go on to be known as Samaritans. 
And that's why the bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans of Jesus' day, because their ancestors stayed behind and did not come back to Jerusalem. And so there's just this hatred for one another out of that. And so Haggai is writing to the group of people who have gone back to Jerusalem. He's the first prophet with a message in the post-exile era, if you will. Ezra records this. It's not going to be on the screen, so just listen. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. That's King Cyrus with that message. A pagan king who does not even really fear the Lord, who has his own gods. And that's the message to not just the Jews, the Hebrew nation who's been taken into captivity. That, that message is sent out to everybody, to all of the kingdoms that Cyrus oversees. That, that God has put on his heart, he's stirred in the hearts of these people to leave, let these people go back home, to rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives where? In Jerusalem. And then he says, may your God be with you. Man, God can use foreign powers to discipline his people who have lived a wayward life. We see that time and time again in the Old Testament. And God can use these same foreign powers for His desire of restoration of community, for His desire of the restoration of the people. So Cyrus of Persia has a softened heart and is encouraging the Jews to go back home so that they can rebuild the temple so that God's presence on earth can be witnessed and experienced. So please understand what we are about to read. It's not about God's ego. God doesn't have to have a temple. He proves that, and I'll show you that he, he proves that in just a few minutes. Okay, God desiring for his people to come back and build, the, to build a temple for him to reside is not about the building. It's not about God's ego, but it is to test the faithfulness of his people. That, 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 that's what this is about. And so as we read, as we get into chapter 1 of Haggai, remember why the Jews were allowed to go back to Judah. To rebuild the temple. That's it. To restore a place for God to dwell so that His glory can shine to everybody. 
And that's not just God's desire. That is King Cyrus, the Persian king. That's his desire because God's put it on his heart. So, you have your Bibles. Haggai chapter 1 is where we're going to start. In the second year of King Darius, all right, let me just say this real quick because now we've got a new king in here. You're like, who's this dude? All right, so remember when you study the book of Daniel, you study history, uh, the Babylonians conquered everybody first, and then the Medes and the Persians came in and ransacked Babylon, right? And then ultimately, King Cyrus and the Persians were the big dogs on top, right? But there for a period of time, King Darius has, has some weight. He's, he's got some power and authority. He's, he's a Mede, okay? That's what he is. All right. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shilatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josadak, to the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Remember why they went there? They went there to rebuild the Lord's house. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time? Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 7. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains in ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So Ezra tells us why they've been allowed to go back to rebuild the house of the Lord. And Haggai, in this chapter right here, he jumps right into it, and he's like, you people aren't doing why you were allowed to come back. And in verse 5, it's our sermon. Verse 5 and 7, actually, because it repeats itself. It says, give careful thought to your ways. And I'm going to tell you right now, church, I would say this as loud as I can to anybody and everybody who can hear the words of the Lord and you are part of the American church, give careful thought to your ways. Haggai draws attention to what we need to, what we know to be an age-old problem as God's people. Priorities. The remnant was not giving to God first, and they were not giving to God their best. They went back and they were building their own houses first. 
The utilization of resources was not going to God first, but to their own desires. King Cyrus wrote letters and sent it out to everybody. As you see the Jews going back, give them stuff. Give them supplies. Give them the resources that they need. And what did the Jews do with it? They went back and they built their own homes first. And God sends Haggai to call them out on this. In verse 9, he says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. How many of you can say that about your relationship with the Lord right now? And we expect much. Golly, it just seems little. It just seems... Like, I don't know, there's, there's, there's something there. It's not, it's not what I think it should be. It's not what I see in other people. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house, church, let me ask you, are you more concerned with your house while the Lord's house is in ruin? And this is not about the physical house you're living in right now. And this certainly is not about this building that we're celebrating and worshiping God in. It's not directed towards that at all. It's about your life that involves God. Are you more concerned with, with your house and your life and the things that you want and desire while the Lord's house is in ruin? Because I'm, I'm about to tell you in a couple of minutes, you know this. You've been around church long enough to know that you are part of this new covenant. God's house is living in you. You are God's house. You jump over to chapter 2, verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Every scholar will tell you that they can't prove it, but they think but some of these old guys, some of the guys with gray hair, they remember what Solomon's temple was. They remember the glory days of what it looked like before it was ransacked. That's why the question is asked, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Y'all remember what that was like? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Like we can have a sermon right there, right? Those two words, and work. Do the work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. And so the Lord Almighty is telling the people, the presence of my glory on earth will one day be greater than it has ever been. 
Now, if you know anything about the Jewish culture, to that point, God led the people by a pillar of fire, and, and, and there's the ark, and his presence was there, and then the temple was built, and that's, that's the place where you experience God was there. And now the message is, hey, because, because of, of you people and your effort, the things that are going on, let me just tell you what's coming. My glory is going to be felt. My, my glory is going to be greater than it has ever been. Verse 7 says, what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. 500 plus years later, the glory that the nations desired is born. Six miles south of where Haggai writes this message. His name is Jesus. He's the carpenter's son. He's the Messiah. He has died for all the sins of all mankind. And he desires to live in relationship with you. And he does this on a very personal level. As he promised his followers a helper. I'm going to leave you now, but I'm going to leave you a helper who's going to come and he's going to dwell within you. This, this paraclete, this, this, this Holy Spirit is going to guide you. It's going to live with you. That's how personal this relationship is going to be. I don't care about the temple. I don't care about the building because I am going to come and live and dwell in every single one of you. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are not your own, I'm sorry to say. That's a conversation that we have with everybody who's surrendering their life and they want to make Jesus not just Savior, but Lord. You're no longer your own. So what about your problems, church? Are you more concerned about your house while the Lord's house remains in ruin? You are not your own, Paul writes here. Because as followers of Jesus, you live, you, you, you are to live a surrendered life. You are bought at a high price, the cost of God's only Son. I'll tell you right now, I value a lot of things in my life. value a lot. But I don't value anything on this earth over the relationships that I have with the three people that share my home. So we can relate to God on some level when he says through Paul, you were bought with a high price. It's not gold and it's not silver. You were bought with the blood of his perfect son who came to die on cross for you. So the temple that needs to be rebuilt starts with your life, your body, 
Your life is where the glory of God now resides. God told the people, I'm going to send my glory and they're going to see it like they've never seen it before. So what do people see when they look at your house? What, what, what do people see? Do they see the glory of God shining through? Do they see the reflection of Jesus shining back on them? Do they see a good person most of the time? Good person. I do most things right. I go to church 2.5 times a month. I do the things. I sign up on the board. Is that what they see? Do they see a good person who participates and goes to church? Do they see cultural Christianity? Or do they see the reflection of Jesus Christ in your life? This message from Haggai is all about priorities. As you are experiencing the freedom to go back. Whose house are you going to build? resources that were given for my house first. What are your priorities? That's what this is about. This is, it's, it's about what consumes our decision-making thoughts. And so Jesus, in a, in a tough one, he asked us some questions. This is Sermon on the Mount. He wants to know about what you prioritize. What's consuming your thoughts? He says it like this in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink. I mean, those are pretty important priorities. Do not worry about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? From the Sykes family, we would like, we would challenge back on that one. Because, you know, our life revolves, we're foodies, like we're, we go like to go out of our way to eat good food. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, be, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? <clears throat> For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus addresses the crowd. He's talking about priorities. He's talking about necessities. These are things. He says, 
He says, what, what are the priorities in life? Food and clothing, two pretty big deals. Especially in this culture where, where you live, not for retirement, but you live to earn enough money to get through the day to feed your family. To, to, to work so that you could take care of your family for that day. They didn't go to the grocery store. They didn't run over to Sam's Club and buy you know $600 worth of meat and keep it for, for a month or two months or whatever. That's, that's not how they operate. Obtaining food was a daily task for his audience. Obtaining clothing was, was, a, was a daily task for this crowd. We've got so much of both in our culture. We, we've got bukus of clothing that we just give it away. We just give it away. I'm in, I might have said that. Man, the other day my nephew came, had to find the air mattress. It's in a Rubbermaid beside my little woodshed thing out there. So I go up there and we got other Rubbermaids stacked up for different things. I opened up two Rubbermaids. I'm glad I'm trying to do this. I opened up two Rubbermaids that had, they're like baby clothes in it that she hopes to one day make a quilt out of. All right? Like, like literally Rubbermaids full of clothing. All right, just sitting out there. And I'm like, Oh, oh my gosh! Yeah, it was, it was, it's it's quite. And I know it's there. And I, every time I see it, I get frustrated. That's why I try to bury it. And I had to, had to dig a little bit deeper for this air mattress thing, and I was reminded of it. But you guys know this as well. Clothing is not an issue in our culture. We we we've got thrift stores that have bukus and bukus and bukus of our rejects that we're just either tired of or whatever. Got too big for it. All right, that's it. Not that I can rewrite God's recorded word. But I think if Jesus were talking directly to us, I don't think he'd use food. And I don't think he'd use clothing as examples of things we worry about. I mean, we worry about our Walmart order getting there on time before I got to go on to the next thing, right? I mean, that's we, we worry about the delivery of our stuff. Not the food itself. I think we have different priorities. I think Jesus might say to you and I, why do you worry about your comfort so much? I talked about this with my managers yesterday. Why do you worry about your security so much? Had a car issue the other night. Had to go out into the crazy world of Kirby Bridge Road about 9.30. Had two guns on me. Had a set of jumper cables, flashlight, two guns. Why do, you, why do you worry about your security so much? Why do you worry about being inconvenienced so much? I, I believe that those are the things that Jesus would say to us. Because these are, and you can research this, these are some of our country's greatest priorities. 
And these are just a few things that we worry about. These are just a few things that dictate our decision making. How uncomfortable am I going to be? How at risk am I going to be if I do this? How inconvenienced am I going to be? Like, like, I really and truly think that if Jesus were here talking to our culture, these are the things that he would say you worry about in the sense that they dictate our decision making. I can't remember the author, but I read this the other day about this passage. He says the New Testament, New Testament authors do not portray Jesus as reckless or blind to our reality. I, I get our comfort is, is, is part of our culture and being inconvenienced is part of our culture and security is a really important thing. Okay, I, I get all of, of that. And I don't think Jesus is reckless or blind to our reality. But when he joins us in this painful world, he still chooses to live, to live with love for God and others above anything else even when doing so includes personal suffering, injury, and loss. Church, it is impossible to value our own comfort and our own conveniences and our own security and seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. I'm sorry, it doesn't happen. Because His kingdom on earth, He promises over and over and over again, is about dying to self. It's about making sacrifices for the benefit of other people. That, that, that's, that's what seeking the kingdom of God first is all about. So what are your priorities? Because here's the thing. When we seek first the kingdom, the needs are met. He promises that. It may not be how you want it. And it may not be what you draw up in your mind or whatever. But I'm telling you right now. Jesus is not going to differentiate from what God is saying. He's going to take care of your needs. He's done for the birds. He'll do it for you. And so Haggai warns the people who were more concerned with building their own life. They were concerned with their, they were making themselves the priority and what they wanted the priority. He warns them that God's house, God's way must be first. And so he gives them the warning. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought, church, to your ways this morning. So we're going to go into a time of response and we're going to sing a little. You can sit there and you can, you can just meditate. Think about this. I think about how do we how do we respond to this today? Tell me, Michael, the three steps to seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Well, I don't know what for each of you. You got you got your own stuff going on. Here's how I think you ought to respond. First off, I think you ought to do what David said and examine your life. If you don't know, pray. And, and, and I, I would say this, don't worry about the parts of the Bible that you may not understand or may not know. 
Take what you know right now God's word to say. Are you being obedient to what you know Jesus teaches? Plain and simple. Just start there. Are you not worrying about things? Are you living a sexually pure life? Are you controlling the tongue? Are you, are you controlling your anger? Are you making disciples the way Jesus made disciples? Let's just start with some of the very basics of Jesus' teaching. Are you doing those things? You're going to respond to that, and it starts with you. A little introspective moment and examining your life. Second thing I think you, you ought to do, and I know I need to do it, is repent. Repent for what is blocking you from seeking His kingdom. And I think the third thing, as we sing the song Gratitude, we let this flow out of our heart directly. Because you can walk out of here not having sought the kingdom of God first. And because of the nature of God and the forgiveness of all sins, we can start today and who doesn't look back on your past. Father, we love you. We are grateful for this. I pray, Lord, that we can take the message of Haggai, who father was angry. He could be speaking to my household right now. You're more concerned about building your own life than you are the, the house of God. And Lord, we know that the dynamic shifts there from a central place of worship to to our very lives being the temple in which Jesus, in which the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So God, I, I pray that our lives are a reflection of you. I pray that our lives are one where people see the glory of God as we seek your kingdom first. So, Father, that, that can be very complex. It can be very simple for us. We know that it starts with just being obedient. So, I, I pray. That we will take very careful thought of our ways. We love you, God. Thank you for second chances. Amen.
you give shy on me, lift up your song. Cause you got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. Let's all stand and sing it together. Come on. Oh, come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy on me, lift up your song. Cause you got a